0: This is episode number 124 with Angel Martinez. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. everyone for joining me today on the School of Greatness podcast. I'm very excited to introduce you to Angel Martinez. Now, for those that don't know who Angel is, he is the CEO of a billion dollar company called Deckers, which owns a brand called UGG and runs multiple different shoe brands, but UGG being one of the most popular that most people would know. Now, I had an awesome interview with Angel a few months back actually at the Headquarters of Deckers in Santa Barbara, California, and we covered a lot of different things from his youth growing up in humble beginnings to what it's been like now having a vision from a very uh, young age to running a billion-dollar brand and being one of the leaders and a visionary in the shoe industry. We talk about how he, early on, took Reebok, when it was only $13 million in sales, took it to $300 million in sales a year and a half later. It's a very interesting story about how he took it there and the thing that catapulted that success. We cover a lot about his dreams growing up. Uh, We talk about how he keeps from getting comfortable once you've become so successful. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listening are achieving a lot of success but how do you stay from getting too comfortable once you get there so that you can continue to grow? We also talk about his most valuable mentor growing up, and as a distance runner, he was a very successful distance runner. We talk about the the principles from running into business and which ones really work in the business world as well. We also talk about how great leaders continue to have a huge vision and be successful when they go through an extremely Emotional experience. And Anhill went through one of those as an adult, and we talk about that and we dive into that as well. Very excited about this one. I think you guys are gonna get a lot out of this. Make sure to stick around to the very end and check out all the show notes back at lewishouse.com slash one two four. Without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into this episode with the one and only Angel Martinez
1: your business further with the smart and flexible american express business gold card it's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases that's the powerful backing of american express learn more at americanexpress.com/businessgoldcard. business gold
2: tired of fighting your kids to make their bed say hello to betty's the unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Bettys.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S.com. eBay Motors is here for the ride with some elbow grease and a whole lot of love. You transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Well, let's start off
0: with, uh, I'm really interested in, you know, your childhood. You kind of just talked about it right there, but... You were, you were born in Cuba, mm-hmm. correct? And then what happened? You were three when you left to the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Is that right? So your father shipped you away and sent you away to be with the extended family, and mm-hmm. he stayed back, and your mother stayed back. Mm-hmm. and My sister stayed back. Your sister stayed back. Mm-hmm. So you're the only one to leave. Mm-hmm. Why did they send you?
2: And Well, because my father, I'd been living with my guardian from when I was three months old. Mm-hmm. My mother and father split. Split up. He worked for the railroad. He was a conductor. So he was on the train six days a week up and down the country. She just didn't want to be a mom anymore. So she just split. So my sister went to live with my grandmother. And I went to live with my grandmother's sister. And her kids, who were my parents' age, had been emigrating to the U.S. since 1952. Okay. And so by 1958, they... uh, know they they wanted their parents with them and my guardians now i've been with them since i was three months old so my guardians said well yes we'll go but if he doesn't go we don't go Mm. because they've grown attached you know so um so that's how it happened and my father agreed to their guardianship and it was before the revolution so in those days uh uh, the flight from uh, havana to new york city was sixty dollars (laughs) really so it wasn't a big deal. People would fly to Miami or fly to Havana from New York. Mm-hmm. You can go to Miami or Key West and take the ferry. And uh, so it wasn't... My My father thought, well, he'll get an education in the U.S., which is what every Cuban wanted. It's the know. dream, right? Yeah, yeah, get high school education in the U.S. and then go back to Cuba to go to the university if you could mm-hmm. get in. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so, it didn't work out that way because of the revolution right
0: so what was it like growing up in the. US without you know with your extended family and
2: it was tough when I was a kid because it was it was you know being raised by grandparents and he was disabled <laughs> and we didn't we didn't have a car or anything so and in New York you know didn't, really you didn't need one yeah need a car but um, you know it was one of those things that you uh, You know, he couldn't play baseball with me or throw balls because he had had a bad motorcycle accident in 52. So I would always, I sort of took care of him. And and then she, uh, she was a a little old lady. I mean, you know, so it was just like taking care of your grandparents. When I was in high school, I really felt, well, he passed away when I was a freshman.
0: Mm.
2: But, uh, but when I was in high school, I really felt like I was taking care of her more than she was taking care of me. How old was she when you were in high school? Uh, 80 something.
0: Yeah. So, when you were a kid growing up, were there other kids around in the, in the house or was it just pretty much
2: you? Well, we lived in a big apartment. So big apartment, in New York. So, well, yeah, a big, uh, you know, pediment type apartment. Right. So, uh, there were kids, you know, it's New York, so there's kids everywhere. But there was no family kids, it was just like... Neighbor, well, my neighbor, cousin, neighbor, my guardian's son lived in the same, but he had a son who was about my age. So, we okay. we're still to this day right. And then, uh, my other guardian son lived there too and he had a daughter a couple of years younger. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a little, there was a little... Plan. No. no. Okay, cool. So, you basically didn't grow up in the best of circumstances, though.
0: You were on some government support and food stamps, I think. Yeah. Uh, right? So, what was the dream for you growing up?
2: Well, I mean, it, it, you know, the thing... My, guardians, my guardian was a very... He was highly educated guy. He had uh, come to... His name was Albert O'Neill, Irish-Cuban. So, he had come to... In 1912, he came to live in Syracuse, New York, from Cuba, because his brother who was 10 years older than sent for him and he he went to high school, he went between 12 and 17 years old, he lived in Syracuse, New York. Went to high school in Syracuse, graduated from high school, and spoke English flawlessly with no accent of any kind, with a name like Albert O'Neill, you wouldn't think he he would have an accent, but the rest of the O'Neills in the family did. Um, He was basically an engineer without the the degree, I'd say. Mm -hmm. He worked for the US Navy in the Port of Havana during the war um, you know lots of stuff like that so he but the most important thing was education to him yeah yeah so step one was you know you need to uh, take advantage of all of the educational opportunities so sure. that was ingrained in me early on and I don't really remember ever needing to be told to do my homework or <laughs> anything like that I, w- I was always always a very good student yeah you know? for whatever reason. Yeah. So
0: did, did you know you wanted to be in the shoe business? or no. Did you want to be an all-star athlete because I know you were
2: a great runner? Well, no, I, I wanted to play Major League Baseball. Okay. So I was a Cuban kid. But when I was a freshman in high school, I think I was about 5'3 and 112 pounds. <laughs> I couldn't hit the ball out of the infield. Right. And couldn't throw the ball out of the infield. Yeah. I could field well, but that was about it. <laughs> I could throw the first from second. right. <laughs> It was okay when we were playing Little League, but when we got to high school, it was a whole other thing, and I was just really small. Yeah. But in PE class, I could run, and uh, it became kind of obvious after a little while that I had some, not in the very beginning, I was super slow in the beginning, but I I wasn't going to quit, you know, so I I think I had a lot of tenacity for it, and uh, by the end of my freshman year, I was running pretty well, Yeah. and that's kind of where it started. You became a distance runner, right? Not as much a
0: sprinter. No, I was, I was what was a your what was your main event what was your specialty
2: uh the mile and 2 mile in high school what was your best
0: time in the mile uh 419 wow that's 1600 not not the 1500 that was a mile wow yeah. 419 yeah my best i was a decathlete uh-huh. in college and my best was a 455 1500 uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but i ran
2: 906 in the 2 mile wow that's that's moving so and that was in high school? Uh-huh. And then you went on to, to do college as yeah, well? I ran in college and uh, I ran the 5 and the 10,000 in cross country. Wow. I ended up running 409. I Like I thought, I wasn't a miler. Yeah. By the time I got to college, I wasn't a miler. There was some, some sub-4-minute miler. some freaks out there, yeah. But I ran 409 in college and uh, 853. But my, my strength was the longer distances, mm-hmm. 5,000. Because you could keep 10, that up. 5,000, yeah yeah so longer and road races and marathons and things
0: yeah did um, you ever have aspirations of
2: being in the olympics or oh yeah yeah when i was when i was uh i remember watching uh, in 1968 kip Kano and jim ryan in the mile in mexico city yeah and our, the, that made, that race ended and i cut off some slacks and put my sneakers on and went out for a run i was so inspired so it was, uh, yeah, it, it was every kid who was a runner, their dream was to run in the Olympics. Yeah. But more than anything, after a while, you start to learn what running actually is. Mm. And it's that constant conf- confrontation of a challenge every day. Mm. Some days you don't feel that good, some days you feel great, some days um, you're not inspired, other days, you know, it's pouring rain and freezing cold and you still have to go run. And... Uh, You, as a kid, that's an incredibly important lesson to learn. That it takes commitment, you know, and you have to believe in yourself, and you can actually do whatever the hell you want. You know, there's no, there's no limit to what you can do. I, I, you know, you you, in high school, I probably could have run faster, Mm. looking back on it. But when I was in high school, it was doing everything it needed to do for me. You know, it was fulfilling for me.
1: What did it fulfill?
2: Um, well, I wanted, I wanted to be an athlete. I always liked sports. I wanted to show to myself that I had what it took to be successful at sports. Yeah. And then the lesson of running is that it's about, you know, that's what you learn to be successful in life. All those yeah. lessons are, it's about, more. it's not really about running. Right. So running was a metaphor for lots of things that you need to learn. And uh, interesting, today you see that in high school, Colleges love to recruit cross-country kids because they're always the kids that sail through college. Mm. They they no issues. You know. they consistent perform. on a long term. Well, because right? they've, they've trained themselves in their minds how to do that. I don't know if that's because that's the kid who comes to running in the first place or if that mm. or if running. I think it's a combination. Mm. But the cross-country kids, and I coached cross-country in Massachusetts after I retired from Reba for a few years. And the same thing. Those kids were, you know... We had no behavioral issues or motivational issues. They all wanted to be successful. What they lacked was confidence, and they lacked—they yeah. need mentorship, and they need all the things that kids need. But if you point them in the right direction, that they're self-directed young people, hmm. and runners tend to be like that. Yeah, so it's something about that sport, and something about those personalities that come to that sport. Sure, very. Uh... Introspective, self-aware. Yeah, self-directed, highly motivated. You can't get very far <laughs> in the sport if you're not that. No, you get you know, be exhausted. You'll give up because yeah, who, who wants to run that far in the first <laughs> place? <laughs> right. I remember as a, as when I first started running, uh, several of the older guys on the team said, "We only have one rule: you can't stop." Wow, that's it. But you can go as slow as you want. You can go as slow as you need to go, but you cannot stop. Wow. No walking. No At least walking. a jog, no walking, and and you can't. And then in a race, the rule was you can never drop out. That's the mm. cardinal sin is to drop out of a race, even if you know you've, you you can't run any faster, you slow down, everybody's passing you, you have to finish. Wow. So those were actually pretty important rules that you learned. And mm. I, I had those those rules are still with me I mean, Wow. No walking, and you can't drop out. Did no. you ever
0: drop out of a race? Never, never, hmm. never. Now, do you feel like? Do you take that same principle and apply it to your businesses?
2: I I, I don't do it in a conscious way, but it's a subliminal sub, subconscious orientation that I have. Yeah, that is how I approach it. I approach I just approach life that way. It's not sure. just business. is just this is just an extension of yeah of who you are. You know, if if you have a if you have a shitty life, you're gonna have a shitty business. Frankly, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you if you don't understand what it takes to live a life with some integrity you're not going to be successful in business it really just starts with that
1: mm.
2: doing what you say you're going to do and you know driving yourself to a vision and goal that you may have overcoming obstacles treating people the way you'd like to be treated i mean yeah. uh, you know and people respect that and they i think that they aspire to, to to work in that kind of an environment right where people are pretty straightforward and so i i try to emulate that here that's that's what i'm about so i I don't tolerate deviation from that because everybody can do that. It's like, don't drop out. I can say that to any bunch of runners and it doesn't matter if you're talented or not talented. You can live by that rule.
1: Yeah.
2: Unless you have a physical injury, that's different. Sure. To give you an example, my son, Julian, who ran cross country, he's 24. He ran cross country for Claremont McKenna his senior year. Uh, and he'd always heard me this, And I'm not a drill sergeant. Believe me, I'm not, but he'd always heard me say this. And, uh, Senior year in college, his league meet when he knew the team was depending on him, and he was like the number two or three man on the team. Uh And it's a five-mile cross-country race. At the two and a half mile mark, he felt this really sharp pain in his leg, mm-hmm. in his thigh, in, uh, in his shin area, lower leg. But he was not going to drop out, and he mm-hmm. and he started slowing down. I could see something was wrong, and we're out there, Julian. What's the mattering? And he was grimacing. And it turns out he finished the race, and he had a broken leg. Oh my gosh. He finished no, the race. <laughs> he had fractured his leg oh, at the goodness. two and a half mile mark, and still finished the race. Wow! And he couldn't even walk at the end. And the next, you know, two hours later, he's in a cast. So, now would you have advised him to, no, to drop out? I would, or say, I would have said, Julian, you should have dropped out. And he goes, I don't drop out that. <laughs> but he's like, you told me, Dad, you no, know, it wasn't out. even. He it he wasn't even that. He said, No, I don't do that. Oh, wow, he doesn't do that. I would have dropped that. <laughs> I would have dropped that. So you know, I mean, it's these are the kind of kids, yeah, people there, and it's no surprise that they're generally speaking quite successful right. in business. So what attracted you to distance running in the first place? Do uh, you think chose you or you chose? I remember, now. I was like five three. And right. In distance running, there's no coach that's going to bench you. Uh, right. There's no coach that tells you you can't play. And then the clock never lies. Mm. There's no subjectivity. Right. You know, it's all the same playing field. Same, either. same race. Exactly. You can clock does not lie. That's true. And so that's what attracted me is absolute. I could be as good as I wanted to be. It was up to you. It was up to me. It wasn't up to the it wasn't coaches. Up to the coach who didn't like putting me. Putting you in the game. Exactly. And you know, doing me a favor and letting me play an right. inning. Yeah. Uh, no, none of that. So that's what attracted me to it. Well, Just the idea right. that it's all up to me. I like that. I like it. So what attracted you in the the footwear business in the first place? Well, that was a natural extension of uh, loving running. I mean, when I got in, I I graduated from high school in 73. And at that time, uh, you know, there's a startup company in Oregon called Nike. And it really wasn't even called Nike. It was called Blue Ribbon Sports. And we were buying shoes from Blue Ribbon Sports in Berkeley in some guy's basement. Really? And the shoes they sold were Onitsuka Tiger. That's, they were these shoes from Japan. Mm Mm-hmm. But there were no other running shoes except Onitsuka Tiger back then. So we wanted running shoes. So we'd go to Berkeley and we'd buy the shoes. And the distributor called BRS Blue Ribbon Sports was Phil Knight, and they were importing uh, those shoes from Japan. Mm. And that later became Nike when, basically, they absconded with uh, Onitsuka Tiger's patents, uh, patterns, and names of product, and just relabeled it all Nike. Right. <laughs> uh, which is interesting. That, that, <laughs> people don't talk about that, but that was fact. <laughs> and uh anyway so um by the time i was in college and graduating in 77 the nike the running boom had had happened or was happening and i saw people that i had known making a living from running and i you know i, I was a rhetoric major so mm-hmm. I, I was always good at at logic and business and sure the logic of business and i can do basic arithmetic really well mm-hmm. don't ask me to do uh, calculus um <laughs> uh, it doesn't, you know, I got through two years of calculus in college, but I haven't used it since. Sure. Business is, business math is, is arithmetic pluses minuses pretty much it. You could argue that it's different now with it, et cetera, but <laughs> I, I'll, I'll persist in that, that opinion. Um, and so when I saw these people making a living from it, I thought, you know, why not me? I could, mm. I can make a living from my passion, yeah. which is what everybody would want to do. And so I wanted to open a running shoe store. I was well known in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, for running and racing. And I won a lot of races, I'm a pretty well known runner. So people. Was this uh, college or after college? After college. Well, okay. So you were like semi professional then or what? Yeah. Like amateur? But you community? couldn't be professional. It was just it was like amateur. If you got caught taking any money or any payment, you would be, quote, banned for life. Gotcha. Okay. It was a thing called <laughs> the AAU, gotcha, the yeah, Athletic yeah. Union. And there was a bunch of old men. I'm talking old men. These are <laughs> 70, 80-year-old guys who maybe ran a race in 1923 and then they joined the AAU to protect the integrity of amateurism. Right. So it was the foundation of how the Olympics were. It's all it was total nonsense even then. Right. Uh, but because you can't you can't be an athlete and devote all that time and not get paid and, and not get at least remunerated for right. showing up. Right. Yeah. You know if you want to compete in a race somewhere across the country and, and you don't have a job or you have a part-time job because you need to train, how are you going to afford a plane ticket to do that? Yeah. So anyway, so we were getting paid uh, under the table as expenses on occasion. Sure, travel or whatever, yeah. Yeah, people would occasionally, you'd get like a ticket to a meet, and they'd send you a first-class ticket, and you could cash it in mm. for a coach ticket. And right, right, right. Or you'd get hotel stipend, uh. and you'd pack six guys in a room, and you split the money that sure. they gave you, you, know, so that was just the way you had to do it. Right. And so, yeah. So after college, um, I went to work for a department store chain called carter Holly, hale I used to own uh, Neiman Marcus and Cap um, <laughs> Capwell's up in the Bay Area, some other stores.
0: too, in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app state farm lets you do things your way so when you need help protecting the things that matter most remember to say like a good neighbor state farm is there
2: and uh so i learned retail i was there for about 18 months or something like that and my goal there was to learn basic retail methodology and then uh, i left that job and went to work for Runner's World magazine to run the store that they were opening in Mountain View. And,
0: and this was one of the first kind of
2: running shoes. This was stores. actually the first running shoe specialty store on the West Coast. Uh, well, let me... Yeah, I'd say it was the most advanced running shoe specialty store on the West Coast. There was one more in uh, Gainesville, Florida, called Fidipides. That was owned by a famous runner. and But we had Starting Line Sports, which was owned by Runner's World. And uh, so then after a, a year or two, I struck a deal with them to buy half the store They decided they didn't want to be in retail. Mm. We had a mail-order business, too. And then uh, about a little after that, I opened a second store in Alameda, which I own They're outright. So I had those two stores. And I was running, still racing, still training. I had stores were open seven days a week. I had a running club. We had a running club with like 300 people in it. We had a big road race we put on, still going on in Alameda. And, uh, you know, it was... It was pretty intense. I mean, talk about burning the candle at both ends. I mean, it was, the racing went out the window because I didn't have time to train. And then I I took a job. These two guys came in my store one day. and One of them was uh, quite heavy. And the other one was a chain smoker. Mm. And uh, it was obvious that neither of them had ever run a step in their lives. (laughs) And they're selling this brand of shoe from England called Reebok. Mm. And I knew Reebok because I had a pair in high school. And I'd ordered them from England. It was a small company then? It was a tiny company. It was They made handmade shoes for the high, high-end elite uh, British athletes. So it was about a couple million dollars a year in business or less? Yeah. Tiny. Uh, small. I mean, I'd be surprised if they did a couple million. I mean, it was really small. Sure. But it was a super geek brand, you know. Yeah. And the only people knew about Reba. They, they were famous for the shoes being ridiculously light. There was sure. nothing to them. Talk about minimalists. These mm. were the original minimalist shoes. And uh, they were made of kangaroo leather and Hmm. they were they were cool looking and the track spikes were pretty cool looking uh, and but and only the top level people had them so if you had a pair of those you better be running fast sure so anyway these guys are came in the store they were selling reebok they had just acquired distribution in the u.s for reebok and uh they they didn't know anything about it they knew <laughs> nothing about running they they really didn't know what the hell they were talking about wow. so one thing led to another and i ended up uh becoming a uh, the sales rep for Northern California, Oregon, and Washington. Because I, what prompted me to do that was a, I remember seeing all the reps. that used to come in to call on me. They were all driving BMWs. <laughs> they didn't seem to work. All they did was take me to lunch, <laughs> and they were they were home by three. <laughs> and I kept thinking, you know, what am I doing wrong? I'm obviously on the wrong side of the wall here. Right. Working all day, all night. Yeah. And so I thought, why don't I think I'd rather get on that side, figure <laughs> out, figure that out. So the opportunity came up, and uh, I had two store managers that I hired uh, to run the stores, and then I went on the road selling Reebok mm. in Nike's backyard, actually. Right, so, right. And then there's a famous story about how you kind of were the champion
0: for the aerobic shoe. Right, I, I did that shoe. Yeah. So, And that's kind of what took Reebok from whatever, a few million or nothing, to kind of like a few hundreds of millions, right, basically?
2: Right, yeah, we... Pretty much went from thirteen million dollars to three hundred million dollars in a year and a half. Wow! Because of this one shoe. Pretty much, yeah.
0: And so, true. how did this? How did this come about? is it? I think it was a story about with your your wife was taking. Yeah, classes. my wife was taking
2: aerobics, and uh I whenever I wasn't, I was on the road three weeks every month and and home one week, which okay. is horrible because we just got married. <laughs> yeah, not good. So so whenever I was home, I I wanted to do aerobics and do whatever she was doing. So I noticed all the women in the aerobics class were barefoot on either carpeted floors or concrete mm. or wood. And uh, some of them were wearing big, bulky-looking running shoes. So. And I also noticed that if on Monday the instructor was wearing a pink headband, by Wednesday everybody was wearing a pink headband. Mm. Interesting. So it occurred to me that two things. Number one, that we needed a shoe for aerobics. And I knew exactly what it needed to look like because I had a pair of track spikes at home that had a very, There were kangaroo leather, they had an open toe box, and uh, white, and they almost, they looked kind of like a jazz dance shoe, mm. Capizio, which is a shoe that was famous back then, and um, so I thought, that's the shoe, now we just need to make that into a sort of a court shoe, more comfortable, add side. a little cushioning, you yeah. know, and uh so that's what we did. So how do you make it happen? Did you talk to the CEO and say let's go? Yeah, yeah. I, your... I called him up, said I want to do an aerobics, and he said, What's aerobics? <laughs> he wasn't in the, exactly in the thick of fitness. Right. And uh, so then I there was another guy who worked for the company who was in charge of, of development and, and you know, product. So he and I got together, I brought him the half of the half pair of my track spikes, which I never got back. <laughs> and uh, the uh, we, I drew it on a napkin. I said, look, it's got to be, it's got to look like this. It's got to have this open toe, you know, it's got to have some cushioning and some foxing like this particular racquetball shoe. Racquetball was big back then. So mm-hmm. racquetball shoes had a, uh, some foxing in the heel and the toe area. And so I said, this is what, the, but the most important, it's got to look like a jazz shoe. It's got to look super soft. I wanted to use kangaroo leather, but at the time kangaroos were an endangered species, which is hard to believe now because they're eating half of Australia. <laughs> But at the time, you couldn't import kangaroo leather to the U.S., mm. and uh, all of the best shoes in the world for performance were kangaroo. You know, all even to this day, all the best soccer shoes that you see the soccer players yes. and the world class level are all wearing kangaroo shoes. Because really? yeah. kangaroo is incredibly thin, very very light, and super strong. Yeah. And when it's exposed to water, it doesn't dry up. Mm. So it actually just forms to your toes. So what a soccer player does. Mm is you buy the shoes a half size or a size too small, and then you, kind of you get the, them wet, mm, leave them on your feet, and when they dry, you have a shoe that's formed to your foot. Perfect. You can feel the ball because they're so light, mean uh-huh. the, the leather's so thin and super strong. But same true. same is true with track spikes. So right, right. all these old Adidas sprint spikes were Kangaroo.
0: Interesting. So you worked with this guy on the t- The CEO kind of laughed at you. Yeah, he didn't think there was much to that. <laughs> I and mean, then he worked with the, the development product developer guy. Yeah. And so you just worked with him behind the CEO's back or yes. he know about it? Pretty much,
2: yeah, behind okay. the back. Wow. Okay. Well, we were, you know, look, uh, I remember stopping uh, after one of my trips and uh, calling him up from a place up on I-5 in those days, stopping a pay phone call back to Boston. <laughs> I was pissed because I just spent three weeks on the road and, and lost $130. You know, and I've been eating at McDonald's and not training and sleeping in Motel 6, and I lost $130. And the reason for it was that I, I people were canceling orders because the running shoe boom was plateauing. Mm. And so we were not in the top five brands in any store. And, you know, retailers are saying, well, I got to cut back to five brands for running shoes, and you're not in them. So, I don't care how nice a guy you are. I don't care how good you run. Yes, we you come into town, we run together, you take us to lunch, blah, blah, blah. People aren't buying them. But business is business. And you guys are not, even though we had a runner's world five-star rating and all that stuff you needed at the time, it just wasn't happening. So, and this and if I couldn't do it, no rep in the country is right. do it. Because I, I was able to talk to running stores coming from running. So, I knew we were in trouble. So, it, you know. I said that, so when I talked to the, the product guy, I said, look, man, I'm not going to be getting paid much longer anyway. So <laughs> what's the difference? Right. I'm either going to lose my job because I quit or I'm going to lose my job because I get fired. But either way, I'm not getting paid. So we got to figure out something. And let's take a shot. I want to take a shot at this aerobics thing because the other the other important point, besides the fact that, you know, aerobics was all women. Who buys shoes? Women. Women buy I came across this little nugget. Tons of shoes. I I came across a little nugget back then because I was doing a little research in the library, and (laughs) the nugget was that women bought eight times as much footwear as men at the time. Eight times. That's true. That's true. And I wouldn't be surprised if the ratio is about the same today. Uh, And if it's not the same, it's only tailed off because of athletic footwear. Mm -hmm. Because back then, most guys had one pair of uh, Jack Purcells or Chuck Taylors, and that was it for their athletic footwear. And women had, and to this day, they buy outfits. They buy color. They buy season. Guys buy a pair of shoes and wear them until they they can't Uh-oh. wear them anymore. Yeah. and that's still true. Yeah, right. So if you're in the shoe business and you're not selling shoes to women, you got a big problem. Mm. And I'd already known that because Reebok, we were doing a good job selling women's shoes, women's running shoes, only because we put some color into them, really. <laughs> and so, so the fact fact one was that you know women were doing aerobics the instructor was super influential because mm-hmm. of the pink headband thing mm-hmm. and so i said to this guy and i said look what i'm gonna do you just get me some shoes wow give me a couple hundred pair of shoes i'm gonna put them on the instructors and it's an aerobic shoe the first of its kind and we'll see what happens wow. and and that's what i did I, in the mm-hmm. meantime i created a program i'd shown the sample around to women and instructors and i would said look this is an aerobic shoe here's why it's an aerobic shoe here's and I, they didn't even hear a word I was saying because they were—they loved the shoe it was so cute. Wow, well, they like a, made your feet look small, sure. look great with outfits, and it came in a bunch of colors. Right, that's all they cared about. And so, well, it, it isn't that people are superficial. It's just that women have a different perspective for buying footwear. Sure. It needs to match up. It doesn't need to so be the outfit. Functional. You needed to make pink, right. aerobic shoes to match the pink leotards, right? Or dark, or light blue aerobic shoes to match the light blue leotard. So we made shoes that match a color of. The clothes, it was not brain surgery, you know, mm. but it was a revolutionary thing in in the athletic world because back then, women, this is pre-Title IX, so women were not supposed to sweat. Right. It was not considered feminine to sweat in public. Mm. The other thing that was not considered good was muscles on women was considered butch. Yeah. This is all before you were born, probably. Right. So <laughs> women were not supposed to have muscles. Yeah. You look all dikey. Pardon my French, you know. Sure. That's, how, that's what people were saying. Right. And I remember when Jane Fonda, you know, came out with the Jane Fonda workout, and Jane had, Jane had guns, she had yeah. biceps, <laughs> she had deltoids, and women were saying, I don't like that, that looks so, she looks so butch. Mm. Well, little do you know, that you know, now years later, that's considered as feminine as, as yeah. anything. And, uh, but back, this is 1980, and that wasn't the case. Yeah. So... You know, effectively, I saw an opportunity to kill all those birds with one stone, you know, introduce a product line that women wanted to buy because women were buying the majority of footwear. And I knew that if we gave them athletic footwear, they would be buying the majority of athletic footwear. Mm. And there was an emerging opportunity to create a movement among women that was already starting. And Jackie Sorensen, who was a aerobics person, Jane Fonda and a few others were starting this thing. And it was really about women discovering the power of physical activity and how it influenced your self self awareness and your feeling of uh, power, if mm-hmm. you will. You know, so no different than running had for me. So I, I thought for me, aerobics was about much more than than aerobics, and it was about much more than selling shoes. Aerobics was a, a vehicle for women to discover the power uh, that they could get through physical activity oh. and uh, how what that does for you, the confidence it builds in you. Right. Uh, it's not just physical strength; it gives you emotional strength, mm. you know. Because I knew that because it had done that for me. For running, or for, for, for running. running, yeah. And so I figured, you know, and I saw it. I saw it happening. Women were really getting into it, mm. and they this was an environment where they could be themselves and not worry about what men thought, and have a lot of fun and get stronger. and, and you could see people transform. Mm. They lost, they lose forty pounds. Suddenly they were strong and fit, and they, then they'd started running. All that stuff happened because of what happened, what we did with aerobics, what we contributed to very greatly. And that was the purpose of doing it, to tell you the wow. truth. That really was the purpose of it. Wow. That was Reebok. That was the purpose of Reebok. To empower women. Into, right. yeah. Through physical activity. Wow. That was the purpose of Reebok. Until we stopped letting that be our purpose, Reebok was bigger than Nike. Wow. Reebok, we went blowing past Nike in about 1984, 85. Suddenly, we, we went past about $600 million. Wow. They didn't know what hit them. They didn't understand. You were at like $10 million, four or five years before four, that. Three years. Wow.
0: Yeah. So It was, it was the uh, fastest growing
2: yeah. company in the history of American business wow. until Microsoft came along. Reebok was the fastest growing company in the history of American business. Because of this one shoe idea. That you Pretty had. much. Wow. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, we did some other shoes too. But that, that was the most successful shoe. Well, it was it was what launched the company. Sure, you know, but it was but it, People don't understand. It was never about aerobics. It was never about shoes. So it was about it was about power. Mm. You know that idea of feeling empowered. Sure. Wow. Who's your most valuable mentor growing up, and what lesson was the big lesson that they taught you? Well, my, you know, my guardian Albert O'Neill was probably the number one. Just he was he was very uh, very smart. He was a very smart man, very practical. What he always said to me is, don't, don't be a fool. He always said that. Don't be a fool. What he meant by that was, you know what you're talking about. You know, At least uh, study things. Right. Don't be taken down a path by people who don't know what they're talking right. about. So, and then I had, uh, I'd say my high school coach was, was pretty important for me. Almost, He was there for me after my guardian passed away. So he was a bit of a father figure. I used uh-huh. to go, he used to let me go hang out at his house have dinner over there and you know just kind of be around uh, his family i had a little crush on his daughter too by the way (laughs) pretty much my age but the point is that he he was really a a great guy in that respect what's the biggest lesson you learned from him um that you don't you know he was a super soft-spoken guy like when you'd be at a track meet and you you hear everything that's going on people are yelling and sure and i could always spot his voice because he'd never yelled he would just say. Oh yeah, go go, Angelo, just about like that. And I could always hear his voice, uh, but he was that kind of a person. Uh-huh. So you know, he, he was he didn't need to be loud mm-hmm. to get his point across and get people to perform. And I, just watching that, I think I, I'm I'm a lot, a lot that way. I don't I don't yell at people. I don't lose it with people. Never have, but I do get from people what I need them to do. Sure. You know? And how do you do that? Um, try to just. First of all, um, make sure they understand why, hmm. why we're doing something. If you understand why you have to do something, then it's easier to do it.
1: Right.
2: If I don't understand why I'm doing something, then what I have is the military. You know, I just point <laughs> to a hill, say, you know, we're going over there, all those machines, we're going. Right. Nobody says why. Right. I'd be a horribly bad, you know, soldier. Because <laughs> <laughs> I would always ask, well, why are we doing that? Right. That's, that's stupid. Or... I'm not a fool. I'm gonna run over there and get shot. Isn't there a better way to do this? Yeah. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd really make a terrible soldier.
0: <laughs> I feel like you know. Let's talk more about Reebok because you took that company. It was the biggest shoe company in the world, or the biggest athletic shoe. It was company.
2: bigger than for a little while. We were the biggest athletic uh, brand. We weren't bigger than Adidas. Adidas was globally the powerhouse. Yeah. But we were bigger than Nike, and we blew by them like they were standing still. It was. <laughs> It was very much akin to what happens in a in a race, you know, where you're the unknown <laughs> sure and the champion's out there prancing around and you just go blowing past him on <laughs> the fell lap and he doesn't know what hit him. Wow. And that's what happened. And it was actually a, really fun to do that. Wow. Because Nike wasn't known for for their humility. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you with Reebok? Twenty one years. Twenty one years. Yeah. And
0: why uh why did you end up leaving <clears throat> or what what happened?
2: Well, I mean uh I was really exhausted mm. by it all. Secondly, uh Reebok lost its way, you know. I mean, we had too many changes in direction, too many presidents that were brought in. The only reason I was there that long was I was I was always operating in sort of the exile environment. You know, I mean, I was I was in in Southern California for 9 years running mm. the business development center which I started and then I, for five years, I ran the Rockport Company, which was 45 miles away from Reebok Corporate Headquarters, and they left yeah. me alone, and I could run my business. Well, wasn't that
0: business going down, and then they brought you in to be the The Rockport president? Company? Yeah, the Rockport yeah, Company. Yeah, I and,
2: doubled it. We doubled it mm-hmm. uh, in, in four years. We doubled, mm-hmm. almost doubled it. No, we did double it. And I didn't do any. You know, I mean, I didn't know anything about the quote-unquote brown shoe business. I knew about I know about shoes. I know about selling shoes. I, mean, I know about that. But the making of, of brown shoes is very different than making athletic shoes, especially then. Uh, so that was an education for me because we had so many incredibly talented shoemakers at Rockport. We never talked about shoemakers at Reebok. Shoemakers mm. shoemakers were athletic shoes. I don't know. They're, they're, it's one basically one construction. A lot of the shoes weren't even using leather. You were using nylon materials. So you don't get the leather craft involved. And, uh, the lasts are a little more forgiving and on and on. So... When I got to Rockport and discovered shoemaking and really learned about shoemaking and got involved in that, the it opened up a lot of insight for me. Mm. you know. So we combined some of the marketing tactics and line-building tactics from the athletic world with the celebration of the shoemaking from the Rockport world. The best of both worlds came together, and we were over you know, double the size of Rockport. Wow. And then Stuart
0: told me a story about you starting another company. I can't remember if it was during Reebok but it was like a, kind of like a Fathead product? Yeah, it was stickers. It was or, fathead
2: before there was ever fat Fathead.
0: Right, right. And then you sold that to M3, right? 3M, yeah. 3M, 3M. So why did you come up with that idea? What, what was Just because really? we wanted
2: to decorate my son's room. Really? <laughs> uh, I, I thought it would be cool to do this border motif. Uh, so we, I did it. I drew all the, the – uh, it was cars. He loved cars. So we did – the border was like a, a street with a center line and mailbox and mailboxes, stop signs street lights, And then the cars, you could – they were all made from contact paper you know colored paper vinyl mm-hmm. and he could move them around you know so we thought that was cute so we, <laughs> i did that and then it occurred to me once i did it that this could this is an idea that if we had a, a note uh, an adhesive that would come off the wall like posted mm-hmm. that it would work to as a room decor system to take put on take off move around right. put in a different room put on your furniture sure and you know our kids like to do that they like to do put stuff right. on walls right 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 and this you could put it on your furniture. You put it, and it was no big deal. Parents just come over and mm. peel it off, put it somewhere else. It left no residue. It was, huh. was Post-it notepads for the wall, basically. Mm. So I got a patent on it, and uh, then we went and and uh, I developed it with my wife. She was the president actually, yeah. and uh, we built it up a little bit. Had a group that we hired to help us manage it, and uh, then we sold it to 3M, which is the own Scotch tape and everything, right? They or invented Post-it notepads. Post-it notes. To- so I had a they, they they didn't have, this is crazy, I think this is where they realized, oh, because I named it, the, the, the company was called Decorate uh, It, nice. and uh, they didn't know that, they didn't realize their their trademark protection didn't extend to anything besides post it. So I just said to them, you know, sorry you didn't have that protected, but I went and got it. So they ended up kind of being a little bit impressed by that, mm. when that little guy comes along, it was a $13 billion company at the time. Wow. And, uh, so then we ended up striking a deal and they, they, uh, they bought the brand and it is now that same technology is now fathead. No way. Yeah. Wow. I, so the fathead, fathead is probably the same patent. The patent expired now. Ah, okay. okay. But I, I, the, the fathead patent is my patent. It, I don't even think fathead has a patent anymore. My patent was fathead. Wow. Cause we had also done, I'd licensed NFL. We had yeah. licensed Disney. You know we had licensed uh, nascar mm-hmm. i had all those those were all same bad decorated happened. yeah yeah and and yeah i had all the nfl team helmets that you could use in a room and then the border was a gridiron
0: wow that's yeah. cool so, what, what year was this
2: cool so adrian my oldest he was so i was 86 87 mm. yeah. okay that's
0: cool so let's talk about challenges and crises uh, I think that every big leader goes through lots of different challenges because they have to overcome them in order to stand out from the crowd. What are some big challenges or things that you've gone through either personally or in business that really kind of shaped who you are as a person?
2: Well, I mean, there's always a challenge if, if, uh, if you don't see yourself as a conventional person. Or in other words, you don't really want to march down the same path as other people do mm-hmm. in, in a lockstep fashion, then you're, you're making your, you're making harder on yourself, yeah. you know, so that's a challenge, you know, and I didn't willingly want to make it harder on myself, but I was also unwilling to, to go down that lockstep path. So, uh, you know, it, it just created, there were more hills to climb, Yeah, but I was a good hill runner, you know, so, <laughs> uh, the hills didn't bother me.
1: Yeah.
2: And, uh, but that was an issue, you know, and then the other issue was just the idea of the of uh, uh, just being able to project yourself into, into a future that you had no reference point for, you know. So like, if you grow up in a a well-to-do middle class, solidly middle class family, where every few years you get in a car, you know, you yeah. live in a nice house, you take a nice vacation every once in a while. I'm not talking about anything exotic. I'm talking about the middle class American right. dream, right? Sure. For me, growing up, that was absolute fantasy land. Mm-hmm. That was. That was something I saw on TV. You know, I saw that on Leave It to Beaver.
1: Yeah,
2: and uh, that was like those house on that house on TV was the nicest. It's like a palace to me. So, to it's a challenge to actually convince yourself that you belong there too. Mm. That 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 why how come what's keeping you from projecting yourself into that? So I came up with something that years and years ago, when I was a kid, I'll never forget this either because. I was playing with a telescope, you know, and and I looked at, and I realized, like kids all do, you look through both ends, and you say, wow, this looks totally different. (laughs) When I turn the telescope around, it looks totally different. Right. And, um, you know, and I I remember we would make a joke about somebody not knowing which end of the telescope to look through, you know. And my guardian would actually say that. And one of the things that uh, I've always said is, you know, you you should look through the other end of the telescope. Mm Mm-hmm. And by that I mean, you know, you just might be looking at your life through the wrong end of the telescope. You might, to you, in that view, things might seem very, very far away. But if you just turn it around, you realize that's not true, you know. So, so what, I, what I really sort of came to was this idea that it's easier to come from a place and go to a place. And by that I mean, to give you an example, when I was a kid, the school record in the mile in high school was 422. Uh, and broken by a very talented runner in 1967 so it wasn't really that long before but it was considered a record that wouldn't be broken sure because back then we are, we didn't have a track was a and c- the tracks we ran on cinder track right no we didn't have a track wow we used to run around the goalposts at the football just on the grass field. yeah and uh so and every track we went to compete on was a cinder track maybe those were the good tracks most of them were dirt tracks right. with rocks on them and rutted in the, in the in the fast lane so they weren't conducive to running fast so a 422 was considered wow you know that was really a fast time uh then there was jim ryan who was a god that was a whole another thing but um you know so i remember thinking to myself i wonder what this guy does every morning that I don't do. I wonder where he eats. I wonder how much he sleeps. I wonder, mm. you know... And so then I started, as I got more into running, I started observing, you know, all these other really good runners that were not high school runners, they were older. And I said, "What? why can't I be that guy? So why don't I just decide I am that guy? I'll, I'll immediately overnight become that guy. Mm. And then... I'll just project back on where I am from there. So, in other words, let's say that you want to be, my goal at the time was also to break nine minutes for two miles in high school, which was really super fast. So then I said, well, what would a nine-minute, two-miler, how do they train? Mm. You know, what do they eat? How do they behave? You know, How do they act? What, 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 how do they view life?
1: Right.
2: And so I decided I'm already a nine-minute, two-miler. I just haven't run nine minutes yet, but I'm a nine-minute, two-miler. And I just started looking at it that way and you know you become what you what you envision yourself being right and that's that's been the way that I've always managed my, my whole life mm-hmm. since then. Reebok, it wasn't to me a surprise that we went blowing past Nike we, I thought we were better than Nike what? we just hadn't done it yet you know right. uh, Decker's I, I thought this was this building that we're in I I knew this I saw this I didn't come to Decker's because yeah. I wanted to stay in this funky place we were at and I had a bigger uh, I was already in the other end of the telescope for this company you right, know right. my I saw this as a multi-billion dollar company because of the quality of the people and the products and the brand you came
0: in when it was around a few hundred 200 million. Two 200 million. was 200 million, that's One point 6. six. I think Forbes had it wrong right now I think I like 1. That was 4 so you've been here for six or seven years now no, I've been here nine years. nine years so from yeah that's pretty good Grown over a billion. Billion, billion billion four billion four that's pretty good that's not bad wall street must love you no no they don't, <laughs> they don't. the wall street doesn't love anybody yeah. they love wall street that's all right, they do. right 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 for those listening we're sitting in a brand new you know space huge uh i don't know what you call this place the foundation or headquarters that it used to be on the other side of santa barbara but it's this beautiful space right now so congrats it's amazing here What about, you know, I know you've been through through some personal, you know, some really hard personal experiences with family. And what I'm curious is how does a great leader continue to have a huge vision and be successful when they go through an emotional experience or, you know, extremely, you know, emotional experience is the one that you had. And how does someone, how does someone continue being a positive force in the world? being of service, you know, giving back the way you do and, uh, you know,
2: well, yeah, I mean, it, it's first of all, my, it was my son, what you're referring to is my son passing away our oldest. And, um, Adrian was a, a, a wonderful, a wonderful person. He was, uh, people talk about, oh, he's an old soul. This kid, I distinctly had the feeling that he was, he was my dad in a previous life mm-hmm. or something. Even when he was a little, a little tyke, and he was just one of those people that everyone was attracted to. He never said a bad thing about anybody. I never, ever, ever remember him. Wow. He never lied, not once, not once, in you know, ever. Which isn't, little white lies from little kids you hear all the time, never, not once. Wow. Just one of those, he was a beautiful person. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, when this happened, I mean, I think we realized that, that the the what we really need to do is to honor him, and everything he was about, and everything he stood for, for the rest of our lives, mm. because he was an example for us and everyone he met, for how to live your life and how to be in the world, and uh, so we became as a family. I think even more focused on on living a, a quality life like he mm. did, and. Uh, so, because it was it was never about him, you know. See the thing about him, Adrian was the type of person that had a gift for math. He was a gifted math mind, and uh, so he never had to study. Graduated from the degree at Williams College, he had a math degree. He just graduated, and he he never needed to study mm. math ever. People would be shocked that he would, you know. These are high level math courses, and he would just <laughs> show up, take the test, get an A, and wow. walk out. So what would he do? And all the time he wasn't studying, he would go around the to all of his math major friends and help them with their work until they understood or they got it. Or if somebody was really stressed out, he'd take them bowling or he'd take them to go find a burrito somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, No consideration for anything other than trying to help somebody who needed help. Yeah. And uh, but that's the kind of person he was, you know. So we. Really became much more aware of that. We got to look through that end of his telescope, you know, mm. and really kind of understand uh, that it's not about us. It's not about me. This is not about Deckers. Is about all of these people that work here and all the people that work for the company around the world having the kind of opportunity that I had mm. to, you know, to live a life that. Maybe is outside of your your expectations or your or your practical reality or your your you know you can dream about it, but you don't have the vehicle
1: right
2: here's the vehicle and I, I really feel that that reflects itself in the products we make and and how much success we have because we're not I don't believe we're a greedy organization. Mm. You
1: know,
2: I think I, in my mind, greed is probably the single thing biggest problem we have as a society and a culture is that this in Infusion of greed in just about every aspect of life,
1: mm.
2: particularly in uh, in how we operate our business and uh, how we operate our government. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, I I'm pretty proud of the fact we're not a greedy organization. Yeah. You know, we're here to yes we're here to serve our consumers number one. Then we're here to serve our employees because without the great employees we can't serve our consumers.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Then we're here to serve our shareholders number three. Because without great employees and great consumers, we won't have any shareholders.
1: Right. It's
2: pretty logical. And I've I've had pushback from people telling me, well, you know, you should have shareholders' interests first. No, I, I'm sorry. I, I vehemently disagree with that. Mm. You know, Shareholder interests comes third behind the other two, which are more important. So if you have happy consumers who love everything you do, right. shareholders are going to be happy. If you have great employees who can deliver against what consumers need, shareholders right. are going to be happy. Right. If you have happy shareholders first, you may not have the other two. Right. Yeah, interesting. I can make a lot of decisions that would make shareholders very, very happy in the short term, uh-huh. but destroy this company sure. in the longer term. Sure. Sure. So,
0: what's the biggest challenge as a leader to stay at the top when you everything you touch seems to you know double, triple, quadruple? How do you stay? How do you not stay comfortable? Or how do you not get in this comfort zone, where uh, that allows you to continue to grow with each thing that you get
2: into? Because it's the process is uh, is what's important. Mm. It's not the product. It's it's not the uh, the end. How do you know that you're at the end game of anything? You know, it, the, the whole idea is, in my mind, is just have a a good process for living your life. Just live your life. You know, do this, learn, uh, and do things that are consistent with what you've learned. Right. And strive to do them better all the time, every day, until you can't walk around, until you're done, Mm -hmm. you know. And you should make progress every day against increasingly clear goals that may in the beginning be about economic realities. You want to buy a house, you want to buy a car, you want to take a vacation, you want to educate your kids. But over time, if you keep going down that path, become about things that are bigger than you. You've already you've handled some of those things. Basic needs. Or you've put them in some perspective. Sure. And now you're on to what do other people need. Right. And then the more you give away, the more you get back, which is the craziest thing. That's the craziest thing of all.
0: Yeah. And you're a big believer in giving back in the community. I think you have a program with all of your employees, right? You match up to $1,000. A couple thousand. A yeah.
2: couple thousand
0: dollars. The company will match to any of their charity yeah. that they want to... That's inspiring. Why do you do that?
2: Why not? <laughs> it's the right thing to do. Right. People, because I want to inspire in people this idea that the more you give, the more you're going to get back. Mm. You know, so we have, the other thing we do is we have a competition among all of our departments for who's going to donate the most number of hours to charities in a year. No, no. So like two years ago, we were, the, the three years ago, I think it was. The total number of hours that our employees donated to local charities was 4,500 hours. I think last year it was over 10,000.
1: Right.
2: And I, I require all of the people on the executive leadership team to be on a,
0: Advisory board, right?
2: a local uh, charitable board. That's if true. they can, because you know, they have a lot to offer and right. these boards need them.
0: Right. So we try to do that. You know, and when did you first learn this lesson of the more you give, the more you get back? did that just come to you one day or did you did someone teach you that
2: or did you experience it you know we all are taught this when we're growing up whatever religion you're in or whatever you know you're sort of, you see movies and the fables and the this and the that and yet we we sort of turn a blind eye to it right. for whatever reason because i think we get greedy mm. cuz we want it for ourselves right yeah. so it's normal sure but i don't know what happened i think i think uh it happened when I was reflecting on the fact that when I was a little, when I was a kid and we didn't have anything and we had to have, you know, I I was a kid, I was a little kid, so I was a, what could I do? Right. So we needed food stamps and we needed, in New York City, they used to give away these big cheese blocks and these giant tins of peanut butter and you went and got in line for those things. And you know what? We needed that. Right. And uh, and I remember as a kid saying, you know, I hate this, I hate that we have to take this. And I remember saying to myself very clearly, I'm going to pay this back someday. So you know, I pay a lot of taxes, so I've paid it back many times. <laughs> but 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 the thing that really uh, distressed me a little bit is when people say that that all of these people are freeloading on mm-hmm. the system and that they're takers. And that there are the makers and then there are the takers. Well, what about the givers? Mm-hmm. Where are they in the mix? Let's just stop talking about that and start saying, well, why not, why not have some more givers here? And you won't have to worry about takers. And the makers will make more, you know? So mm-hmm. it's just a, a ridiculous conversation. So I'm, I've become very uh, adamant about this. It's almost militant about it. <laughs> so what do you recommend for people who are listening maybe who
0: are, you know, have a job or entrepreneurs <laughs> that either they're just getting by or maybe they're making a decent salary to you know have a vacation every year or something like that or maybe they got a little extra cash what do you recommend and how to give is it through
2: time is it through donations is it through it, you know most people have time yeah time is the, is the most precious commodity if you yeah. if you're you know running a charity mm-hmm. you need you need help yeah you need people to volunteer their time, whether it's a boys and girls club where you can coach basketball mm-hmm. or take kids out on a field trip to the Natural History Museum or, you know, you can, you can uh, have a cooking class for the kids. You know, kids need that. And the, the, a lot of the problem you have in so many communities is that you have parents who have to work two or three jobs just to put food on the table. So what happens to kids? The kids are left on their well, own to yeah. wander around the neighborhood and get influenced by all kinds of people. Right. Do all kinds of stuff they shouldn't be doing. And, you know, a few adults every once in a while just say, hey, I care about you. Yeah. How'd you like to cook spaghetti? Right,
0: right. You know? it be
2: great. It does a lot for kids. It's, it's all that. It, it isn't about what you're doing with them. It's that you're doing something with them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that that's what's important. So mm. time. People say, well, I don't have any money. I can't get. Well, actually, do you have? How about two hours a week? You, yeah. you, you splitter away two hours a week watching some stupid thing on TV. Right. You can always DVR that and, you know, go, I'm not trying to be holier than thou or anything. I'm just saying that people need to think about it a little differently. And we all need to become more givers, not just takers and makers. Yeah, I like that. It's really important.
0: I like that. A couple questions left for you. Um, I feel like every big leader has blind spots, you know. Steve Jobs is an amazing leader, Martin Luther King, amazing leaders, but they all have their own blind spots, their own weaknesses. What do you feel like some of your blind spots are or maybe some of your weaknesses that
2: you may have? Um, I tend to be a little impatient. You know? mm. I tend to be sometimes a lot impatient. I'm not impatient <laughs> as much with people as I am with motivations. You know, In other words, I, I do like to know why someone is how they are, why they're doing something. And then, then you can have a conversation about what they're doing. You know? sure. first understand why. There's this great book that this guy named Simon Sinek. I just
0: had him you on a podcast, the podcast a couple weeks ago. Okay, school. he's great. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I that start idea of with start by. with why is yeah.
2: a is a big idea. Yeah. And I, 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 I kind of wish, you know, that I had written that book. <laughs> to many people, because I've always thought that way. I've yeah, always yeah. thought that way. He his, the insight to write that book is fantastic. Yeah. I've circulated it all over the this company.
0: Yeah. I was gonna bring you leaders of your last, but then Stewart. I just got that. Stewart told me you gave it away. I gave that to everybody. That's why I, was, I didn't bring it.
2: <laughs> so you know, to me, um, I, I, I get I get very impatient with people who I feel have the wrong motivations. Mm. Mm. If you're here for yourself, mm. I don't want you here. Mm. I, you know, we kind of refer to it as my "no shithead" rule. Mm-hmm. You know, to be coarse, <laughs> I can't help it. There's a certain coarseness that comes from the Bronx that I can't seem to. <laughs> it's okay. But, but it is true. You know, there are people, and what I mean by that is there are people who are selfish. There are people who are greedy. There are people who are obstinate and don't want to acknowledge another point of view. And those people can't work here. Mm. They just can't. Yeah. And I have an obligation to not allow them to. It's This is also a place where if you've had that in your background and you're looking to change and have a different place, then we welcome you with open arms come on in and be part of our tribe.
1: Right, right.
2: And, because what we're trying to do is something that is a little bit different from the standard corporate motif that has emerged over the last 20 years. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm a big believer that we have every right to do that as a company, public company or not. Right. Because it's allowing us to attract the right kind of people, and those people create the best kind of products and the best kind of brands and yeah. the best kind of marketing and on and yeah. on. Yeah. Because they like what they're doing, and they appreciate doing it where they're doing it and why they're doing it.
1: Yeah.
2: And so all these things we do as a company to enhance the community and to provide educational opportunities for employees and to you know, this facility, this campus, we have a little health club, we got a great cafeteria, we got a we'll soon have a third of a mile jogging path over nice. there. We got a soccer field and two basketball wow. courts, That's all cool. that. Well, why do we do that? So that you're free then to appreciate what you've got and work hard to protect it
0: yeah yeah so how do you how do you empower and inspire other people in your company or around you to step into their own greatness or become great leaders themselves
2: for you know the departments or their lives their families well I what we try to do and I don't know this is always very difficult is first things first you got to eliminate the fear component because the biggest step that people have to overcome is fear right mm-hmm um uh, most people are afraid to try something they're afraid of i don't know what they're afraid of you know they could be afraid of the consequences they could be afraid of failure they could be afraid of not being seen as capable or competent they could be afraid to make that presentation because they don't speak well yeah. or they're afraid to speak in public and you know on and on and on we all have all these fears and um what we try to do and we I, I try to do it you know in every way I can is try to eliminate fear from the mix. I can't live a person's life for them. I can't get in their head, right. but we try to create an environment where you know somebody could actually work here in a in, in a fearless way, which is better for everybody. Yeah, you know so in, in corporate environments, the bigger they get, the more fear tends to infuse itself. And then people use fear as a control mechanism. You know, they use it as a, as a, as a weapon. And then fear becomes wrapped up in power. Mm-hmm. And so then power uses fear as a as a key element of its of the weapon. Right. And and I find that to be incredibly destructive. You know, so I, you know anybody can walk into my office anytime we talk about anything. I, I'm, I walk around the bit I'm, I'm an introvert so i tend not to i've never been the back slapping guy right but that doesn't mean i don't want to talk to you i just that's not me you know sure and i love that i love it to be around people who do that <laughs> um, that's why they make tequila i guess you know? <laughs> but the point is that i i really feel we can create an environment where, where people can be themselves mm. And then we can harness the collective genius of the organization, that we can do anything we want.
0: So, what's your biggest fear then?
2: Well, I don't have any fears, to tell you the truth. The, the worst thing that could ever happen to me has happened. Yeah. When my son passed away. I, I, uh, I don't. I really must tell you, I don't fear anything. <laughs> must be nice. <laughs> you, 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 know, you arrived to this place through pain and suffering. Sure. You've had, you've gone through a lot of fear. And well, you, when I, yeah, all the, all the things you go through, you're still here. Right. So what's there to be afraid of? Right. What? What? I don't. I really don't. I don't have. Uh, I don't have any.
0: So what's your big vision for the rest of your life? What do you want to see um, in the world? I want to see some,
2: some grandkids. Uh, that'll be good. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, you know, I, I want this to be uh, a leadership company, and not just our industry. And I believe we already are in our industry, but I want it to be a leadership company that people aspire to work for and uh, respect because of who we are and they, and they respect our products That's around true. the world. That's I don't know how big that is, it doesn't even matter yeah. how big in, in terms of revenue it is, but if it's a leadership company, it's well respected, uh, mm. then it will create opportunities for that many more people. Yeah, You know, and someday I'd like to be able to do business in Cuba, mm. which would be a wonderful thing because this absurd anachronism called the embargo is keeping 11 million people from pursuing their passions mm. the way that everyone else in the world should be able to do. And right. it exists for no apparent reason. I'll get up. That's my one political soapbox. To get oh, you're on, but it, <laughs> yeah. This thing has to end. It's, it's, it's uh, heart uh, and soul destroying.
1: Mm.
2: And it makes us lesser as a people for continuing it. This is not American. Man. To do this to a country like that for no apparent reason anymore. Man.
0: So was was that part of your vision then that
2: you want to be supporting? Yeah, I would love to make shoes in Cuba. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, why not? Yeah. You know, it's a it's a great ninety miles off the coast. We could make footwear there. We could make it there easier than we make it in China or Vietnam or El Salvador. Or, we make shoes in L.A. We make over a million pair of shoes in L.A. I heard. Yeah, you know so. We'll make shoes all over the world, but a, a shoe factory puts a lot of people to work, gives them self respect, gives them pride. Yeah. You know, they can. they, they, that's the first step toward, you know, lead, leading a positive life.
0: Yeah. Nice. Well, final question. It's what I ask all my guests. And it's <clears throat> what is uh, your definition of greatness?
2: Well, just being there for other people. That's, uh, that to me is greatness. Living a life that's other oriented. Is greatness when you arrive to that point, you can start to see some great things happening, and uh, great things come your way, and then you get to rub greatness all over yourself. Doesn't mean you're great, but you get to rub some greatness on you. Right. Uh, but if you if you don't do that, I have a hard time seeing how greatness would ever come your way.
0: Right. Right. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. If there's uh, anywhere you'd like to send people online, I know they can check out all the brands at deckers if there's anyone who asks you, would want to send them, feel free to, to let them know. Or if you have a Twitter, are you on the Twitter? Are you on Twitter? I don't. No. I don't. No. <laughs> no. I'm not a, I'm not okay. a tweeter. No. <laughs> well, no, ch- thank you. Really yeah. appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys again for joining me on today's episode. If you enjoyed this, please go head back to the show notes at lewishouse.com slash 124. And make sure to share this with your friends online over on Twitter and Facebook and Google+. Also tag a picture where you're listening to this episode over on Instagram at lewishouse over there and hashtag school of greatness. I hope you guys enjoyed this. We had a, a lot of fun doing this together and uh, I'm very excited to... Thank you guys again for all you do. We've got some other amazing interviews coming up soon, so make sure to subscribe over at iTunes.com slash School of Greatness. Again, thank you guys so much for joining, and thanks to Onhill for sharing his wisdom of all of the success he's created over the years as the CEO of Decker's. And you guys know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great.
2: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories